Revelation chapter 2, um, letter to the church, letter to the church. This is what it says in verse number 8. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Somebody say 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Verse number 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, I pray that today that you challenge us. I pray that you encourage us. I pray that you fill us. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Come on. And everybody said, amen, amen. Thanks so much, Landon. So we're in this series called, uh, called A Letter to the Church. And last week we talked first about the church of Ephesus. And we're going to make our way through these seven churches that... Jesus, these are our letters. If you go and you, you look, you see the red letters. These are Jesus's words that he came to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. In fact, I, I have an island because, or a map because I want you to see this, that even the way that he structured and wrote this letter was, was very strategic. So you can see down here in the bottom that this would be where the Apostle John was actually writing this letter from. He had been boiled in oil, and they could not kill John. He is the last withstanding uh, apostle and disciple that is living. All the others have been martyred. He's been boiled in oil, and when he wouldn't die, they exiled him to the island of Patmos. And while he was on the island of Patmos, he receives this revelation, hence the name of the book, Revelation. He receives this revelation and the first part of the revelation, and we talked a little bit about this, is that Jesus wanted to get them a, give them a glimpse into the future, but he would talk first to the churches. And so the first letter is to Ephesus, then to Smyrna, then to Pergamum, then to Thyatira, then to Sardis, then to Philadelphia. I don't know if you knew this or not, but they started a satellite campus here in the United States. And then you've got Laodicea is the last church. Some of you got it. Some of you didn't. It's okay. Um, but this week, we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Smyrna. And I want you to see how John wrote these. He wrote them in an order. He wrote them systematically as the Holy Spirit would give them to him and gave him this revelation. But remember last week what Jesus spoke to the church. He gave them this compliment sandwich and, and You'll see this in every letter, but this one is going to be a little bit different. But he gave them this. He would give them a commendation. He would give them correction. He'll give them counsel. And then he'll give them promise. And so as we go through each of these letters, you'll, you'll see that each one of these letters is not only written systematically in the order to these churches, but also there's a pattern that each of these letters follow, commendation, correction, counsel, and then promise. 
There's one that's missing that, that deviates just a little bit in this letter and its correction. We won't see the correction. So we're going to see the commendation. We'll see the counsel. We'll see the promise. And the other letter that deviates just a little bit from this is, is week seven uh, when he writes to the church of Laodicea. And I'm just going to lay a little bit of groundwork if you just stick with me for just a moment. But I want you for a moment, just for a second, to, to put yourself in the shoes of the pastor of Smyrna. He says, write to the angel, and we talked about it last week, but the angel is actually, it was a messenger. It's the same word for messenger. And so is this letter that would be handed to the pastor. And like you saw there, it would go from the church of Ephesus, and then they would take it, and they would take that letter to the church of Smyrna, and it would make its way to, from church to church. I want you to imagine with me for a second that you're the, the pastor at Smyrna and you hear that Jesus has written your church a letter. That Jesus showed up to John on the island of Patmos and he wrote your church a letter. I mean, how exciting would that be? I mean, can you just, you're going, okay, so Jesus showed up to him on the, and he, he wrote a letter to my church? There's all these other churches. I mean, it could have been the, the church in Corinth. It could have been the church of Thessalonica. Like It could have been all of these churches that Jesus, but he wrote a letter to my church. But, but how quickly would the excitement kind of squelch and would the excitement die down when you open the letter and you read these words? Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you that the devil will put some of you in prison. I might just fold up the scroll and be like, all right, I'm good. Uh, this letter can travel on to the next city, and there's no need for me to read this particular. I mean, honestly, think about this. Think about standing in front of your congregation. Think about standing in front of your people and going, I've got words from Jesus that I want to tell you, and you begin to rattle off and read these letters. The pastor, by the way, by the way, is a name, uh, a man by the name of Polycarp. And he was the pastor of this church. He was a disciple of John, the man who wrote this letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he had pastored this church since it was planted. And he would have to stand in front of his congregation that day and deliver this message. Do not be afraid because what you are about to suffer, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison and you will suffer for 10 days. Be faithful. And when he gets to this point, I wonder how he delivered it. Be faithful even, even unto death. I wonder if I were to get up this evening and we would have nobody in this congregation. You know, it's here they are. They're they're a relatively new church plant. I mean, you know, they're probably, you know, they're they're several years old, but I just wouldn't suggest like if you're trying to build a church, if you're trying to build a congregation, if you're trying to build a community of believers, that this would be the strategy that you would want to get up in front of your people and deliver this message right here that some of you are going to be uh, put in prison and some of you need to be faithful even to death. Some of y'all be like, Restoration Church is not my home church. I'm going to move to Philadelphia. I'm going to move to Laodicea. I am going to Ephesus. I am finding me another church to be a part of. And, and you know, Ephesus is only 40 miles away. I'll get on my donkey and I'll travel to Ephesus every Sunday because I'm not, I'm not going to be a part of the, the church in Smyrna. It's a good way to, to grow a church the opposite direction. 
But I think after reading the words of Jesus to his church, I think probably Polycarp probably said something like this. God is faithful. God is faithful. Even though there's been this pronouncement, even though there's, and I, and I got to say this because at this point it wasn't shocking because this, this letter was written in about 95 AD and you've got to understand that persecution was commonplace. The first murder Stephen or martyr Stephen had been murdered in 36 AD. And all the apostles at this point had been martyred. John was the last disciple alive. The only writer John remained. So the contents of this letter wouldn't have been completely shocking, yet still difficult to deliver to a congregation. When we read this letter, it's important to remember again that God has been faithful. So you may be saying tonight, Craig, where are you going with this message? Are you saying that we're going to, are you saying that we may be, are you saying that I'm not saying that? But what I am saying is that when Jesus wrote this to the church, this is exactly what happened to the church in Smyrna. But what I'm telling you that we can glean from this is that God has been faithful. God will be faithful and God is faithful. The very first thing that you see when this letter begins is that before it all happens, before God gives them a glimpse into the future of things that would be to come, he reminds them of his eternalness. He reminds them of this. It's all about eternity. And if I could tell somebody something tonight is that we have to live our lives in light of eternity. That it's not about what's happening to you right now in the here and now. It's not about what's going, because we have this earthly perspective that we focus on the here and now, what we're walking through, what we're going through. But God is, he opens up the whole thing with this. He says, these are the words that I am the first and the last who died and came to life again. What he's saying is I have always been, I always will be, I'm faithful and not even death can keep me. And it's important that as we look back, that we remember how God has always been faithful. He was faithful to Abraham. He was faithful to Abraham when Abraham would step out and obey God. And, and God said, I'm going to bless you with a son. Did he receive a son? Yes. And then when God said, take that son and sacrifice him, was God faithful to provide another sacrifice? Yes. And when the children and when Israel would, would go bare and, and a famine would hit the land, God had already provided Joseph, who would be in Egypt, who could provide them a way out. And then when they get trapped in Egypt in slavery, God would raise up a man named Moses that would have favor and be able to go in and talk to Pharaoh and, and he would be able to raise them up so the children of Israel could come out. And when they're in the desert, what would God do? He would provide them water and he would provide them food. God has been faithful. And when you look all throughout the Bible, there's something that you need to remember. It's this, that God has been faithful. And I think many times we need to look back over our life and we need to understand that God has been faithful. When you're in the midst of the trial, when you're in the midst of the situation, when you're in the midst of the fight, when you're in the midst of problems with teenagers, when you're in the midst of maybe singleness, when you're in the midst of 
financial trial and turmoil, you need to look back and you go, God has been faithful. You need to look back and go, if God brought me through that, God can bring me through this. If I'm still here today, I'm going to be here tomorrow. God has, I asked for them to sing that song tonight because all my life, God has been faithful. In every season, in every storm, in every battle, God's been faithful. No matter what I've come against, God's been faithful. And not only has he been faithful, in the middle of what I'm walking through and going through, guess what? God is faithful. Even in times when I can't see it, God is faithful. And guess what? I know that I can look to the future. And no matter what happens today, God will be faithful. Why? Because he's the first. He's the last. He always has been. Why? Because not even death could hold him. God has been faithful. And so before he writes anything, he wants to remind the church, listen, there are things that you're going to go through, but before you go through them, you need to understand that I'm faithful and that I'm in control. Because when we face difficulties and trial, we need to remember what Paul wrote to the Roman church. Look at this, Romans 8.18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Can I read that again? Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Can I put it in my own words? What you're going through doesn't compare to what you're going to. What you're going through today doesn't compare to what you're going to. And that doesn't always mean earthly, but I'm telling you there's something far better than this earth in the eternity. Man, I cannot wait till one day till I get to see Jesus and I get to leave pain behind and I get to leave sin behind and I get to leave struggle behind and I get to leave this crazy world behind and I get to look at Jesus and I get to welcome and he gets to, excuse me, welcome me home and I get to fall into the arms of the man that died on the cross for my sin. What I am going through doesn't compare what I am going to. I would tell somebody today what you're going through doesn't compare what you're going to. We must keep an eternal perspective in everything that we walk through. What you're going through is only temporary. It would say this. It would say, do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil has put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution. Watch this. It says for how many days? Ten. Notice there was a, a time stamp. What I would love to tell you is that this was an actual, literal 10 days. Some theologians actually believe this. Some theologians can, can trace it back and say that they would, they would put Christians in jail for 10 days and that they would torture them to try to get them to deny Christ and that if they didn't deny Christ in that 10-day period, that then they would execute them and they would kill them. Other theologians would say this, and I think I lean more towards this, is that there were 10 emperors that would roam, that would rule. And there were 10 emperors from the time that this letter was written until the time that Christianity would be made legal again. And there were 10 emperors. And I tend to lean towards this idea that, that they would go through and it was, and you, you may not want you, you to hear this, but there was a two, about a 200 year period that would be persecution that they would walk through. But the good news is that it's only for a time. 
And what I want to tell somebody tonight is that what you're walking through is only for a time, that there's a marked season for what you're going through, that it's not going to last forever, that the trial won't always be there, that, 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 that you are going to overcome, that God is going to step in, that God is going to do something, that God is going to work on your half. Why? Because God is faithful. Not only has he been faithful, but in the midst of the storm, God is faithful. Watch this in 2 Corinthians, what Paul writes again. If there's anybody that knew about suffering, it's the Apostle Paul. Watch what he would write here. Look on on the screen behind me. It says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, three times. (laughs) Listen, if ever you think you got it rough, okay? If ever you're like, woe is me, just save this in your Bible app. Maybe write it on a post-it note somewhere. Because Paul said this, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often in perils, in water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and in toil and sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirsting and fasting often, in cold and nakedness. Somebody tell me you got it bad when you read that. I mean, when, when I'm down, when I'm feeling like everything is going wrong, I just need to read the words of Paul and go, you know what? I ain't got it that bad. I need to go back to the book of Revelations and read about Smyrna and go, you know what? It's not as bad as what I thought it really was. I'm okay. I'm still alive. I'm above ground. I'm provided for. I've got food. I've got a great wife. I've got a great family. I've got so many blessings that I can afford. We sometimes have to count our blessings because he is faithful. Second Corinthians, he writes this. He said, therefore, and listen, church, he is way more spiritual than I am because I'm not here yet. He said, I take pleasure. Come on, somebody say, take pleasure. I am not there. I am not this spiritual. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am working to get there, but I am not there, all right? I want to be there. Then when a trial, I'm just like, thank you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Something else to have. Come on, God. One other thing. That's where I want to be. I can't tell you that I am always there because sometimes I've just got to go back to 2 Corinthians being like, I ain't got it as bad as you, Paul. It's all right. But what you're going through doesn't compare to what you're going to because God is eternal. God is. Come on, somebody say is. God is faithful. Not only has he been faithful, but, but God is faithful. He says this in, in the opening lines of, of Revelation. He says, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. You read those lines and you go, okay, how does this make sense? I know your poverty, yet you're rich. How can you be poor and rich at the same time. I want to show you something. Because this word poverty that he uses is, uh, it's a Greek word. I'm going to say it right. Tukos. That's it. Tukos. And it means poor, but it's not like financially poor. It's the same word that is is used uh, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom 
of heaven. And it's the same concept, and it's, and it's not a financial poor, but what it is is it's a, it's a poor in spirit. And this word, literally, the, the meaning behind it is this. It's, it's what they would say is a begging poor. Because they had a different word for uh, like a working poor, you know, meaning paycheck to paycheck. They had a different word for that. But this word poor meant that you were a begging poor, meaning that if you were on the side of the road begging for money, if somebody didn't put money in your cup, you were done. You weren't going to eat that night. You, were, you weren't going to, you, you didn't have anything. And so it was this complete, total, that's the kind of poor. So when he says, you are poor, yet you are rich. It's meaning my total dependence is on you, God. My strength is not going to get me through this. What I have today doesn't get me through this. When I'm walking through the hard times, God, I'm putting my cup out and saying, if you don't fill my cup, I won't have joy. If you don't fill my cup, I won't have peace. If you don't fill my cup, I won't have strength. And it's this idea that we come to God continually with our cup. We are poor in spirit that we keep coming to God to go, God, you are my strength. Watch what Paul would say again in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He said, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in my flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. He goes on to say, My grace is sufficient for you, and my strength is made perfect in weakness because I continually come to God with my cup and go, God, you've got to fill me. God, I, need, I am poor in spirit. I can't do this without you. It, it's, it's a complete and total reliance on Jesus. That's the reason I'm rich. I'm not rich because of anything I have. I'm not rich because I can be good enough or I can't earn it. There's nothing that I can do. It is only independence on Jesus. Somebody say amen to that. Now, in, in each city each church that we look at there's significance to names to, to geography and i want you to watch this this church is named smyrna show me this name is smyrna which came from it's a greek word that came from a hebrew word myrrh and myrrh means bitter i mean when you read the bible and you understand the meanings and the concepts behind absolutely everything that is written in this book. Is it not mind-blowing that Jesus would write a letter to a church that means bitter? That means you're going to face some suffering and some bitterness, and you're like, man, this is not the preaching that I showed up for tonight. And listen, here's the fact of the matter. We are going to go through situations that are bitter that are bad, that are hard, but we know that God is faithful. And I don't know, but you may remember, you may not, if, uh, if not, go back and listen to it on the podcast, but we did a series all on, on myrrh back in December, and, and myrrh is a, is a gummy sap substance that has medicinal purposes, which was also used for embalming. And it was one of the gifts presented to Jesus, if you remember, and it represented Jesus as a suffering servant because this is what they would use to anoint the dead for burial. And if you look at myrrh, I want you to look at this 
plant that myrrh actually comes from. And for me, when I said, okay, myrrh, and Paul said that there was a thorn in my flesh. Look at the thorns that this, even the plant that, that means bitter has these thorns. And the way, this is so good, watch this, the way that they harvest the sap, the way that they harvest the myrrh from this plant is that it is wounded over and over. And in order to get that resin out, in order to get that myrrh out, it's wounded time and time again. And this tree and the way they do it is just continually cut and just continually wound. And when I read this, I read about a church that is wounded. I read about a church that has suffered, that has been through some things. But out of this comes a sweet smelling aroma. And myrrh in the end produces such this sweet smell. And I'm telling you, there's things that if we had our choice, if we had our way, we wouldn't walk through them. But God goes out of them is going to come a sweet smelling savor out of them is coming something good. Because in the trial, in the storms, it's it's hard to see sometimes that that God is faithful. And the marital issues, and the issues with your teens, and your singleness, and the financial issues. Sometimes it's hard to see that God is faithful, but that's why we have to ta- have to take an eternal perspective and realize that in everything we go through, God is working it out for our good. We aren't facing death for our faith. Our issues are, man. I don't. I. With all empathy, I say this, but we face first world issues a lot of times. And it doesn't mean that what we're going through isn't hard, but we're not facing the problems of the church in Smyrna to where we're facing death. And I'm not saying in the future that we won't, that our world doesn't turn to that. If you keep reading the book of Revelations, things get crazy and things get wild. And I personally believe that Jesus is going to pull us out of the earth before all of this happens. But what I know is that God is faithful in the midst of what we go through. God is faithful. Too many times we want to give up on God and we want to walk away. The church of Smyrna was facing death for simply believing in Christ. And they would hold on to their faith and believe and trust and know that God is faithful. Second Timothy said it this way. If we are faith, watch this, less he remains faithful. Show me that up there if you can. 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, what is God? He's faithful. He's full of faith. When I'm lacking faith, God is there full of faith, ready to help me. I'm going to read something. And it's going to be a little lengthy. But I think when you, it's easy to, to read the Bible in the context of a spiritual letter, just Jesus' words, and sometimes pull this book out of history. And I think it's important to know that as we read this book, this is, I mean, it's, it's so many things. I mean, there's, there's poetry in this book. There's history in this book. There's spiritual truth. There's so much in this book. 
But a lot of times we'll read something like Revelation and we just read it and we don't really look, go back and look at the historical context of what is happening here. And so I told you about this man named Polycarp who was the pastor. He was the bishop of this church. And he gets up and he reads this letter and the persecution that he reads about does indeed come to Smyrna and get incredibly difficult. And I want to read this. I'm going to read this word for word because I don't think I could have put this any better because it was written uh, and taken from an excerpt um, from one of the book of martyrs. It says this, local persecution of Christians has been going on. Some of Smyrna's Christians have already been put to death. And search parties have been looking for the who has been persuaded to do the prudent thing and leave town. Someone has just tipped off the pursuers that Polycarp is hiding out at a farmhouse in the country. The mounted police set out on Friday about supper time. They carried their usual weapons as if they were advancing against a bandit. Late in the evening, they arrived to arrest Polycarp and found that he was resting upstairs. He could have escaped to another place, but he decided to stay, and he said these words, God's will be done. When Polycarp heard that the police were there, he went downstairs and he talked with them. Everyone was amazed at his age and courage and wondered why there should be so such haste about arresting an old man like this. At this point, he was uh, on up in age. Despite the lateness of the hour, he had a table set for them to eat and drink as much as they desired. He asked them to give him an hour to pray undisturbed, and they agreed. So Polycarp stood and prayed out loud. He was so filled with the grace of God that for two hours he could not be silent. Those who listened were astounded, and many were sorry that they had come to arrest such a vulnerable old man. The chief of police met Polycarp there and took him into their carriage. Sitting beside him, he tried to persuade him and change his mind. What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and offering sacrifice and saving yourself from death? At this, Polycarp did not answer them. But when they kept at it, he said, I'm not going to do what you advise. Polycarp walked on quickly and was taken to a noisy stadium. Polycarp was brought before the proconsul. He also tried to he also tried to persuade him to deny the faith. Respect your age, he said. Swear by the divine power of Caesar. The proconsul urged him harder. Take the oath and I'll let you go. Curse Christ. And I love what he said. 86 years I've served him. And he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my, how can I blaspheme my king who saved me? I have wild animals, the proconsul said. I'll throw you to them unless you change your mind. He said, call them in, for we are not allowed to change from something better to worse. 
Scorn the wild beast and I'll have you burned alive if you don't change your mind. Polycarp said, you threaten with fire that burns for a short time and is soon quenched. You don't know about the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment that awaits the wicked. But why are you waiting? Come do what you will. Polycarp radiated with courage and joy as he said these and many other things. Not only did he face not only did his face show no signs of distress, it was so full of grace that the proconsul was astonished and sent his herald into the middle of the arena three times to announce Polycarp has declared that he is a Christian. Immediately they began to pile wood around him. They were going to nail him to the stake as well, but Polycarp said, leave me the way I am. He who gives me power to endure the fire will help me remain in the flames without moving, even without being secured by nails. So Polycarp put his hands behind him and was bound. He looked up to heaven and he prayed out loud for everyone to hear. Then the men in charge of the fire lit it and a great flame blazed up. We who were given the privilege to witness saw a great miracle. The fire took shape of a vaulted room like a ship's sail filled with wind and surrounded the body of the martyr like a wall. And he stood inside of it, not burning his flesh, but as bread that was being baked or as gold and silver being refined in a furnace. Watch this. And we smelled a fragrant aroma like the scent of incense or other costly spices. Remember Smyrna. Seeing that his body could not be consumed by the fire, the lawless men finally commanded an executioner to go up and stab Polycarp with the dagger. When he did this, there came out a dove and so much blood that the fire was extinguished. I believe Polycarp would say this to his church. Be faithful even to the point of death. And then it says, I'll give you a victor's crown. And this victor's crown was not a crown of royalty. But it speaks of a, of a crown, a victor's crown. That they would hand out in the Olympic Games, that they would place on a victor's head. And I believe that that day that Polycarp was welcomed into heaven, saying, God has been faithful. God is faithful. God will be faithful. I think of the three Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I think about how they were faced with being thrown in a fiery furnace, just like Polycarp was. And they would look at him and they would say, listen, bow down, bow down, worship our God. And they said these words, our God is able to deliver us. But even if he does it, he is faithful. And tonight I would tell you this, no matter what you're walking through, God is faithful. No matter the storm, no matter the trial, no matter what you're up against, God is faithful because in what you're going through and what you're going to, he will be faithful. We look at things from an eternal perspective and we go, God, my life is in your hands. 
Because if you've been faithful in my past, I know you'll be faithful now. And because you're faithful now, I know you'll be faithful in the future. Come on, can you stand on your feet? James 1.12, as I close, says this. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, same crown, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. He who endures temptation, he who endures trial, who he, he who endures hardship, he who endures pain, he who endures struggle, God is faithful. The church in Smyrna, current day Turkey, still there. You want to know why? God is faithful. I read a story about how the pastor died, but you know what? God is faithful. Why? Because Polycarp's in eternity. And there's nothing. He starts the whole letter by saying this. I'm the first and the last. I'm everywhere. I'm in the midst of everything. I was there in the beginning. I'm there in the end. I'm there in the middle, no matter what you're going through. And he says, I am the one who died and I came back to life, meaning not even death can make God unfaithful. You may have lost a loved one in your life to cancer or sickness or disease, and you go, God, where were you? If they are a believer, they're standing with Jesus now, and God can be faithful even, even in the middle of death. 